Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to episode 108 of That's So Second Millennium. So this is a conversation between Bill and I where we started out talking about masks and the science behind masks and the difficulties people have with masks. And because this is that so second millennium, eventually we start talking about the difference between ancient and medieval culture and modern culture. We do so by means of talking about science, the quest for novelty in science, the quest for novelty across cultures, the difficulties conservatism has because novelty is such a drive in contemporary society. We talk about modern wealth and our modern anxiety, which is sort of strange since it seems so out of character but of course there are many reasons why we feel so anxious why anxiety seems to be increasing and how we can afford this quest for novelty because we just have so much social capital built up we have so much material wealth and security that we can afford to spend so much time looking for uh, novelty we'll see if it catches up with us in the next several decades all right uh, I hope you enjoy it. This is going to be a long hiatus because August has five Mondays this year. So uh, we will get back on September 14th. Thanks a lot. In a way, that is a point of departure for this one in terms of if, if we want to start talking about, you know, the whole mask fiasco and the sort of cultural, you know, the way that plays into cultural norms and our, you know, polarized political debate. I think that is a legitimate thing to, to talk about. I respect the, the science as I understand it in a limited way. I, I respect that the science behind uh, the use of masks. Um, but I uh, then it's, of course, complicated by all sorts of other things, as is, is uh, every aspect of our uh, politics and culture and society and media now. It's complicated by how you feel about uh, Trump and how you feel about Biden and whether you think that the order to or the proposed order to mandate masks for everybody nationwide when outside, whether or not they're near people, uh, one wonders where the solidarity with society and solidarity with good science stops and where the where the kind of mindless uh you know uh, leader follower mind frame that really only feeds into unhealthy social and political trends starts is is that how you feel um I certainly wouldn't express it in you know, quite so many terms. I mean, I look at what's the, the debate about masks specifically. And, you know, on the one side, I get that the, the recommendations changed. I'm not surprised, nor is my confidence in the scientific enterprise shaken by it. I mean, it was already, I mean, it's, it's, it's like asking me if it bothers me that, you know, Alexander VI or whoever was a terrible pope. It doesn't. I've already digested that. I've right. already taken that into account. <laughs> right. You know, the fact that 
the fact that it's hard. And, you know, we talked the last time we had a, a one-on-one conversation, we were talking about statistics and, you know, the difficulty that we have um, in science with our use of statistics, because statistics is awfully subtle and it seldom tells us exactly what we want. It's like, it's like the whole question of what does a p-value tell you? It tells you the likelihood of your data given your hypothesis, but what you really want is the likelihood of your hypothesis given your data. And that's not possible. I mean, that's, yeah. that's simply not possible. We can't, we just can't do that. Um, and we have a hard time tangling with the intellectual, you know, consequences of that. Um, and then, so, you know, the fact that, you know, early on, <laughs> we, we ought to know more. I mean, this is another, another interesting question. How does science, you know, how is the work directed? So it's directed right. almost in a, it's not, it's not a free market in a, in a, but it has similarities to that. It's what individual, individual people go and choose what they study. And they choose an individual right. take on an individual problem. And then they try to convince people, they try to convince people to give them grant money to study that problem. They try to convince right. people to publish the results that they get. Um, it's very individualistic. I mean, it always has been. And, you know, there's never been a, I mean, even, even in, say, the Soviet Union, even in China, you know, the depths of Maoism, um, I don't think there's ever been I don't think anyone has ever attempted to sort of direct science that rigidly. I mean, there's, there's certainly to an extent there's, there's been some bureaucratization, but it's still, it's, it's, it's still directives being sort of put out there and then individuals decide how they're going to try to sell their research as fitting in with that directive. Uh-huh. So it's very, it, and it leaves gaps. It leaves things that like, you know, you stand here in 2020 and you turn around and look back. And it's like, why didn't, why didn't we look at that problem? Doesn't that seem obvious? Shouldn't we already know whether, you know, whether a face mask, you know, helps trans, you know, helps stop the transmission of, you know, of the, cause it's not like the coronavirus is unique. I mean, in terms of its transmission method, that's not, no, that's right. I don't think anyone's really made that claim. I mean, there, and yet there are, I mean, there there are subtleties about it, but you know, I don't, I don't think we actually know as much as we'd like to about how the common cold or the flu, like, gosh, how long has it been since I've heard the term, the common cold, even. (laughs) It's kind of been overwhelmed in the public discussion. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about influenza a lot because that's our comp, but uh, Uh, we don't, we don't talk about the the common cold much these days. yeah, it's like it seems like we should know. It seems like that's and you know, and I certainly, in my perspective as a geologist and someone who's interested in material science, there's a lot of sort of basic. Why don't we already know the thermal expansion of this extremely common mineral to a lot more specificity than we do? We just people got bored, and that's interesting. You know, the state of science is what, what what we do and don't know is to a large extent determined by what interested people and what bored them. With the, you know, what yeah. just got left behind, like Napoleon That's leaving his army to surround this fortress while he goes off into Austria and, uh, you know, continues to wreak havoc and stuff gets left behind because it's boring because it's too, you know, I mean, that's, that's not groundbreaking. I mean, this is a social pressure inside science. This is not, this is just pedestrian, ordinary science. This is just incremental science, the blah, 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 blah. And 
Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's something, the, the quest for novelty has taken us so far. Um, and we've gone so far over to that side of, you know, if you look at the historical sweep of the last several centuries, um, you know, again, this is, this, this is after all that's so second millennium. So <laughs> how did the last, how did the last 500, how does this fit into the trend of the last 500 years? Um, the second half of the second millennium. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's been this shift way too far over to one side of, you know, a golden mean, you know, there, there is a golden mean between conformism and, you know, seeking after novelty. You can be way too conformist. Um, and then there, then there are still pockets of, you know, conformism, conformity. Um, but we're, we're so caught up in the search for novelty. So much of society is, you know, our economics is, is based so much on looking for the next disruptive thing. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. What's the next thing that's going to disrupt everything? I mean, that's just such a vaunted term. Um, and novelty. Um, you know, in science, you know, what is, what is the new groundbreaking or, or the term revolutionary, which is, you know, so overused that it started to recede a little bit, I think, in, in terms of usage. But this, the concept is still there. We're looking for the next revolutionary thing so yes. that will tell us that everything we already know is wrong. We're just hungry for that. We're looking for that everywhere. That's, that's got to be new and implicitly self-destructive to some degree. It seems to me that what was always valued about uh, novelty and innovation and curiosity and wanting to learn more uh, was not identified with deconstruction and, you know, really uh, uh, destructive questioning uh, of, uh, of the status quo, but rather how can we improve and how can we build upon the good parts of the status quo? It's almost as if, um, innovation and curiosity and novelty have been redefined at their very roots in recent years. No? <laughs> yeah. No, that's really meta. That's a really meta form of, of yeah. evolutionary novelty disruption. Um, yeah. And it's, and that's, and our, our society is breaking down around it. I think to some extent. Um, I mean, I think to a considerable extent and, and it's not, it hasn't all the way caught up with us yet, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, oh, yeah, that's, you look at, I mean, you look at everything to do with the family, right. And that's what we're, you know, that's, that's our future. And it takes a while for that to, you know, for us to see the effects of what we're doing. I mean, so, yeah, you know, so yeah. I mean, you think about, obviously, it goes back at least as far as the 60s, and then there's legalized abortion, and then now we have, you know, everything to do with, um, I mean, gay marriage. Yeah, it's, that, that almost can be overstated. It's like that becomes such a banner and it gets shoved in our face that we're not, you know, really looking at what the bulk of people are doing because the bulk of people are still not involved in that. Right. Um, and... Yeah, it's what, what's going what's going to continue happening as that 
as that trend continues to work its way through our, our social system, uh, through, through our population, through our society. Well, um, no one, yeah, no one is capable of, or no one seems interested in looking at the long-term implications or the long-term trajectories of any of these things. Everybody's necessarily, if we're, if we're, if we're totally concentrated on what's new today and what can we do that's innovative and creative today, then there's really no room for either yesterday or tomorrow. Yeah. Right? The guarantee is that tomorrow is going to be something that, you know, we're just going to rip up today and go off in some other direction almost. That, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting point. Yeah, people, uh, I mean, usually the defense for, uh, for progress is that it is going to make tomorrow better in some, in some sense that's going to be worth keeping and that's going to bring us towards some more perfect, lasting ideal. But actually, the way we think about the present is our best clue as to how we're going to look at the future. Why? So it, it's your question. Why should we look toward a better tomorrow if our attitude then is going to be deconstructionist and disruption oriented then too? I mean, yeah. we, we just keep building something new and uh, fully expecting to tear it down um, in the short term future, which really is a, a nihilism, which really is a kind of uh, uh, masochism and sadism combined. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Am I, yeah. I, am I right? I mean, myself uh, and others. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, um, uh, and of course it's, it's, uh, it's part of, it's part of human nature. For instance, I think of, you know, having grown up in New York, Oh yeah, it's it's the on, ongoing story of uh, Manhattan that you see buildings uh, being built up, a lot of money and uh, effort being uh, expended on some construction project, but fully knowing that uh, well, right down the block there's uh, a really nice building that's being torn down, and that in ten years probably this building that's going up now will also be coming down for some better. Or at least it'll be gutted Project. and renovated, and then you know, exactly years after that, exactly. And we've gotten used to that kind of mind mind frame uh, in in uh, in so much, and yet uh, that's that's what the conservative frame of mind is supposed to prevent, right? We're supposed to, uh, to the degree that conservatism has any appeal to uh, young people. Uh, uh, and I, 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 I think conservatism has to work harder on building its appeal to, to young people. But at the very least, young people should feel, well, you know, uh, they grew up in circumstances that had certain good qualities. And they should be thankful for that and being able and be able to uh, pinpoint those good qualities. And then also say, well, I want those good qualities to persist. And I'm willing to 
take stands that will help those to persist, even though they may not seem at the moment like the best, most short, best shortcut to that extra piece of progress and change that I envisioned down the road. We, we uh, you know, uh, maybe we want progress and change so quickly that we think even though, even conserving some of the beautiful things that have brought us to where we are today, we just can't afford that luxury. Right. So much political culture is fixated on the fact that, well, by God, American society is racist and sexist and homophobic. And therefore, I mean, and that's, and therefore it must all be torn down. I mean, yeah. we've been going around this block for a while. Um, yeah. We've been circling this block at least since the 60s in that fairly radical form. Um, I mean, of course, before that it was Marxism, and Marxism wants to tear everything down in a different way. Yeah. Um, so really, yeah, it's just, it's just translating it from economy to, you know, other, other aspects of society. So, yeah, it's been, it's, that's been going around for, I mean, yeah, none of, none of these things are new. And the idea of, you know, totally ripping up society. It's just that people, you know, people in the ancient and medieval world just couldn't, couldn't entertain that luxury for all that long because they, they really were at the edge of survival. I mean, they really yes. were, you know, if they threw up everything they were already doing and tried something new, they had so little social capital to burn through before it caught up with them that they were, you know, not doing something. I mean, so there was, it was incremental improvements were just the only way to go. It was, you know, people were going to continue doing, you know, the agricultural and trade practices and, you know, landowning practices and all of that stuff that they had. Um, and stuff, you know, would get changed, but they would get changed at a fairly superficial level. <clears throat> the level of, you know, whether the Romans are in charge instead of the Seleucids or something like that. Um, the, t- the people at the top would change, but the, you know, the peasantry would, be, would keep doing more or less the same thing that they're doing. Now, yeah. everyone is engaged in, I mean, and we just, and it's just because we have enough social capital built up, the post-war world, the post-World War II world just has unthinkable wealth and unthinkable material, you know, success so that we have all of this space to revel in. Um, and we can, yeah, we can, we, we can entertain this and, and the, the people who are, you know, engaged in society, you know, economically, you know, doing something successful. And of course it can be spread across the world now. So we don't have to make anything in the United States. We have, we hardly have to make any material goods in the United States at all. We can have so few people involved in growing food because, you know, we have so much mechanization of agriculture and all of that sort of thing. Um, the rest of us can sort of flare flail around and do things that aren't really, I mean, that aren't geared toward survival or even, you know, toward, sort of ordinary material comfort or, you know, plenty. Um, and, and we have so much room to sort of do engage in this sort of experiment, but there's still going to be limits. Um, I mean, there still are limits in terms of, you know, how much our happiness has eroded in terms of, you know, we're less safe than we were. I mean, we're safer than we were materially, 
And yet it's hard to, hard to argue that we're happier in terms of our, you know, levels of anxiety or our levels of, you know, that you can quantify these things at all easily. <laughs> if we all, we all took blood tests, so like how much of different neurotransmitters we had in our blood system, I suppose, in our circulatory system, I suppose that would begin to give you some indication. But um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's still hard to, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing how contrary this is. And yeah, you're, 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 what you're saying about gratitude, I mean, that's just absolutely anathema to so many people and people that I even, you know, talk to in the context of say, you know, recovery, the, you know, right. people, people, uh, trying to recover from, you know, diseases that ultimately go back to mental diseases, essentially that go back to, you know, worrying all the time that go back to not feeling safe and to all the stuff that Darshan Arves talks about, um, right. the lack of security and, you know, and it's, you know, and they're just not, able or to some degree not willing to hear like that there's anything to be grateful for at all there's it's just that's not thinkable and that's that's disrespecting the pain that i've been through and they've been through pain i mean unthinkable yeah. you know they've, they've but it is thinkable but it's you know it's it's tremendous pain and that's that's a bridge you have to cross somehow to get to you know, a life that's really, you know, worth living as Fulton Sheen would say. Well, people haven't really been, been taught about those, um, uh, the, the, the need for those, uh, bridges. Um, and, um, I guess they, they've, they've come to see, uh, so much of the future as, um, urgently problematic that they, are willing to more quickly and more readily dispose of a lot of the stuff uh, from the past without any without any philosophically grounded or pragmatically grounded transition time or transition space where you know let, let um, let's press pause as it were and let's think about all of this together before we make any rash judgments. One of the things that I like about, um, well, many uh, Chesterton quotes, I think he said, um, you know, um, never, uh, when you come to the, uh, the end of a road and, and, and you see the sign, um, um, you know, uh, no trespassing, um, uh, don't, don't go beyond this point. Uh, at least please be sure why people put that sign up before you tear it down so you can continue the road. Right. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at least, and we don't even, we don't even think of why that sign was right. Yeah. Put up anymore. We're, we're, well, I mean, we're certain that it was there because of bigotry or something, you know, some, right. some other was, yeah. that, you know, that there's, you know, some, you know, the idea that marriage is, you know, basically about having kids and that there's some value in being, you know, a virgin before you get married. You know, obviously those are just, you know, those are just there for some bad reason that we don't even need to think about what those were. It's, it's just it's just bad crap that we've inherited from, you know, 
from yeah. centuries gone by, and we just need to throw it away as quickly as possible. And and our media and our politicians uh, feed that short-sightedness and feed that negativity toward the past because, uh, you know, like we were saying, um, you know, everything in our culture, everything in our economy is built to favor uh, the new, the innovative, the bigger, the better, the assumption that progress is going to be better. And uh, there's no one really coaching us to press pause. There's no one coaching us to stop and think. Uh, that, that, one would think that that role would have been played at one point by the universities uh, because you have all of these different fields of built-up knowledge um, that you would think have an inherent stake in preserving that knowledge. Yeah, I mean, you think about when, where universities started, right? You know, they started in the high middle ages and what did they have? They had the masters of arts who studied philosophy and they had the, you know, the masters of theology. To study what we had already gained yeah. as a human race. Yeah, yeah, that there was, that there was this, you know, that there was this core of knowledge that we already had and that we had to preserve at almost all yeah. costs. Right. Um, we had to preserve scripture and we had to preserve the dogmas of the church. You know, we had to preserve... Um, these authoritative, you know, uh, clarifications, basically, you know, that the councils gave of you know, matters like the Trinity and the Incarnation. Um, we had to we had to cling to those, and then you know the the implicit assumption was also that the ancients had already, you know, the ancient Greeks, essential in particular, had already given us, you know, a lot of valuable knowledge and philosophy, and that. We were going to build with these tools that we had right. these, you know, we had these foundations laid and we had these principles with which we could work and we were going to use those to build something, you know, and then we were, we were still going to make progress. Um, and, uh, and in that era, progress was probably downplayed more than it needed to be. Um, and that, yeah, and that, that was what universities, I mean, they were, they were gatherings of, you know, what we already had. Um, you know, the whole universe of what we already have could be you know, yeah. collected there. And then that, yeah, and then, the, and then they've become these bastions of, yeah, it's weird. I mean, of course, they're, they're huge institutions with all the implicit conservatism in a certain sense that huge institutions have. Um, and yet they're also, you know, places where, where there's so much like I was talking about so much spare resources floating around um, that people can just drift off into because the, the price, the price for drifting and saying something that's simply not true, <laughs> not useful right. um, is so low. Thanks for listening to this episode of that. So second millennium TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.